boys. Have a gander at what I've got here. I found me a whole stack of plays and poems. Just left around on the doorstep by some bloke named Anonymous. Seems like he don't want them. I don't know why. These are ace. A bit dodgy, but the Porsche's going to eat this stuff up. I've got to work on them a bit for the crowds, mind you. But a bit of slapstick and a few jokes and Bob's your uncle. These will be right scrummy. Blimey, I can't even say some of these words. Are these even words? Ah, no matter. It's all part of the performance. This will put the Lord Chamberlain's men on the map. Well, my name ain't Billy Shakespeare. Boys, let's get started. I'm going to need a tower. Who wants to be one of the witches? We need nymph costumes. Something about taking a nap midsummer. I'm going to need a skull. I'm going to be a king. This is going to be great costumes. Let's get the wardrobes going. Let's get the props going. All right. Everybody at it. <laughs> at least that's what I hear. Sometimes our imaginations are captured by the possibility of alternative explanations. Join me as we explore the historical events and public state of mind that influenced the appeal and popularity of the most enduring alternative theories out there. I'm Ryan Nelson, and welcome to Conspiracy Theoryology. On this episode, Episode 7, The Question of Shakespeare Authorship, we will discuss the brief history of this theory and some of the various flavors of supposition when discussing alternative authorship. What was going on in 19th century scholarship that made this idea a consideration in the first place? How does the use of authoritative support encourage others to likewise adopt a supportive opinion of theories such as these? After the break, we will take to the stage, follow the scripted trail of conspiracy, and hopefully reach the final act on this literary conspiracy of William Shakespeare. Howdy, theoryologists. Let's talk Shakespeare. But before we do, my utmost apologies for the horrible accent performed at the beginning of this episode. It was fun, and I can say with all honesty that the performances will only get worse as the podcast continues into the future. You've been warned. Now, this conspiracy states that the 37 plays, 154 sonnets, and the contribution of over 1,700 new words to the English language credited to William Shakespeare, the Bard of Avon, 
written sometime after 1592 until his unexpected death in 1616, were actually written by someone else. First introduced in 1848 by American writer Joseph C. Hart, the theory was simply a derogatory viewing of Shakespeare, with the implication that most, if not all, of his works were written by other playwrights, and at best that Shakespeare could be given credit for adaptation of the works for commercial viability and adding the occasional vulgar joke. There was no assumption of conspiracy to hide the identity of the original authors, simply that the truth had been lost to time before the publication of Shakespeare's works. See, Hart erroneously believed that the first publication of these works under the name William Shakespeare didn't occur until 1709. This, of course, is untrue, because the plays were actually first published within seven years of Shakespeare's death. Though Hart's theory was quickly dismissed by most because of the false premise of publication, the seal had effectively been broken, and, and shortly following, in 1857, another theory surfaced. The writer and Shakespearean scholar Delia Bacon published her work, titled The Philosophy of the Plays of Shakespeare Unfolded. In this work, Bacon intended to prove that the works of William Shakespeare were, in fact, written by a group of social reformers, notably Francis Bacon and Sir Walter Raleigh, for the purpose of introducing a philosophical system that they themselves couldn't afford to claim the responsibility due to the political and social environment of the time. Influenced by views of Shakespeare at the time, which was nearly a deification of the playwright, Bacon found it difficult to mesh the, the facts of William Shakespeare's life with this vast catalog of works he had produced. Though intriguing enough a premise for many to at least take audience with Bacon for her theories, she was not without her critics. Ultimately, the support for her ideas came from her friendships with notable contemporaries, people such as Harriet Beecher Stowe, Nathaniel Hawthorne, and Ralph Waldo Emerson. It was because of these admirers that their, and their supportive commentary that Bacon's theories were appreciated at all, if not accepted. Now, the true impact of Bacon's work came from her association with other prominent influencers of her time, as opposed to her work proper. See, this, this growing list of names for those that have at least considered her premise as plausible has led to the modern effort of the Declaration of Reasonable Doubt. This is a movement endeavored by the Shakespeare Authorship Coalition, which has made this declaration available online for supporters to sign. It's currently claimed over 4,000 verified signatures, including over 700 academics and what it claims to be notable signatories. This declaration builds much of its persuasive argument on the basis that there are many well-known doubters, such as Mark Twain, Orson Welles, Sigmund Freud, Charlie Chaplin, and many others. Now, in addition to the Francis Bacon and Sir Walter Raleigh theory, there are other prominently featured considerations for authorship. Let's go over some of these in short. 
There's the Oxfordian theory that holds that the works traditionally ascribed to William Shakespeare were in fact written by Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford, brought to prominence in a 1920 book by author J. Thomas Looney. The theory cast doubt on Shakespeare's authorship for a number of reasons. See, Looney suggests that evidence gleaned from the works proved that the author of the plays was a highly educated multilingual expert in the law who had read a wide range of both ancient Greek and Latin texts. Now, another theory out there is known as the Marlovian theory. A contemporary of William Shakespeare, there's no doubt that Christopher Marlowe was one of the greatest playwrights of the Elizabethan era. Suspected of being a government spy, he was stabbed to death at the age of 29 in Deptford. Conspiracy theorists since then have suggested that his death was faked to escape charges of espionage. Changing his identity, they suggest he went on to write under the nom de plume of William Shakespeare. Another theory is known as the Derbian theory. Now, the theory that William Stanley, the sixth Earl of Derby, was the author of Shakespeare's works was put forward by a group of French writers in the 20th century. The theory developed after an archivist named James H. Greenstreet discovered a letter by a Jesuit spy named George Fenner. In the letter, he complained that Derby was busying himself penning plays for common players rather than devoting himself to the Catholic cause. Well, this, as well as offering evidence that Derby was clearly writing plays at the time, the theorists suggest uh, parts of Love's Labor's Lost are actually based upon events which took place at the court of Navarre in 1578, events that, that theorists suggest Shakespeare would have no knowledge of, but Derby, as an aristocrat, would. Now, by no means have I explored and explained the history of this theory to any level of responsible satisfaction. As usual, I will point you toward other shows which have already done an excellent job discussing the subject that we don't need to, to rehash, and I'd rather you go out there and listen to some other points of view on this and some other explanations. For this, I recommend the Our Fake History podcast. Host Sebastian Major does an excellent job of discussing the Shakespeare debate in his podcast. Well, now that we've covered the history, let's move on to the theoriology. Of course, we aren't here to cement a solution to this discussion one way or the other. In fact, we aren't even discussing the merits or criticisms of any of the theories. Remember, we're not discussing the validity of the argument and the theory, but rather to explore reasons that the theory captures the imagination. One of which is due to the period in which these uh, initial thoughts and theories surfaced. You know, the 19th century mindset of Hart and, Bake, uh, and Bacon are, are something to be explored. Uh, Wikipedia actually has a, a pretty good explanation of it. This was the heyday of uh, an area of literary study known as higher criticism, which was claiming to have uncovered things such as the multiple authorship of the Bible and positing the composite nature of masterpieces like those attributed to Homer. You know, it was also a period of rising bardolatry. 
the deification of Shakespeare's genius, and also a widespread, almost hyperbolic veneration of the philosophical genius of Francis Bacon. So mind you, you have two characters in here that are held at such high esteem that that people couldn't help but begin to associate these contemporaries. Delia Bacon was influenced by these currents. Like many in that time, she approached Shakespearean drama as philosophical masterpieces written for a closed uh, aristocratic society of courtiers and monarchs. And she found it hard to believe that they were written either with some sort of commercial intent or gain or simply for a popular audience. Uh, you know, it, it, it's hard for us now to often consider the zeal for this approach uh, to understanding of, of ancient writings. We often take for granted that it is widely accepted that many historical, ancient, and religious texts are a collaborative effort, composite of many authors and influences over often a, a great deal of time. Well, this was not the case before the higher criticism approach took form during the late 18th century, at least not in such a widespread acceptance and viewpoint, and, and it's carried forward into modern day. It is this newfound understanding of many texts that influenced Bacon and her contemporaries, making her accusations of Shakespeare authorship at the very least plausible, if not probable. But... What if the current declaration of reasonable doubt? Why the effort to make Shakespeare authorship a matter of discussion and study in modern day when we are very long past the contemporary influences of Hart and Bacon? And most of all, why the name dropping? Well, this is the argument of authority. And this is the, another, the, the, the main aspect that we're discussing today. See, an argument of authority which is also called an appeal to authority or an argumentum ad uh, vericundium is a form of what, what is known as defeasible argument in which a, a claimed authority support is used as evidence for an argument's conclusion. It is well known as a fallacy, though it's used in, in a cogent form when all sides of a discussion agree on the reliability of the authority in the given context. The argument from authority is based on the idea that a, a perceived authority has to know better than the person that is evaluating the, the opinion, and that their opinion should conform to that of the authority. You know, this has its roots in psychological cognitive biases, such as something known as the Ash Effect. In fact, in repeated and modified instances of the Ash conformity experiments, it was found that high-status individuals create a stronger likelihood of a subject agreeing with an obviously false conclusion, despite the subject normally being able to clearly see that the answer was incorrect. You know, further, humans have been shown to feel strong emotional pressure to conform to authorities and majority positions. A repeat of the experiments by other groups of researchers found that uh, many of the participants reported uh, considerable distress under group pressure, with a, a large percentage, over 50%, conforming at least once and agreeing with the clearly incorrect answer, whereas the incorrect, or, 
incorrect answer was much more rarely given when no such pressures were, were present. There was another study shining light on the psychological basis of the fallacy um, as it relates to perceived authorities uh, known as the Milgram experiments, which demonstrated that people are more likely to go along with something when it's presented by an authority. Now, how many of us have seen that? This is something that's applied today with any marketing, uh, commercials, product placement, all of these things. In a, in a variation of the study, the researchers did not wear lab coats. Uh, it, resu- it reduced the perceived authority of the tasker. And the obedience level of the participants dropped uh, to 20% from the original rate, which had been higher than 50%. In, in the first uh, phase of the study. So ob- obedience is encouraged by reminding the individual of what a perceived authority states and by showing them that their opinion goes against this authority. Many scholars have noted that certain environments can produce an ideal situation for these processes to take hold, giving rise to groupthink. In groupthink, individuals in a group feel inclined to minimize conflict and encourage conformity. Through an appeal to authority, a group member might present that opinion as a consensus and encourage the other group members to engage in groupthink by not disagreeing with this perceived consensus or authority. Now, I know we just went over a a lot of different uh, uh, experiment names and, uh, you know, big terminology trying to explain this uh, this argument of authority, but essentially, going back to how this is applied, we are looking at it in terms of this uh, argument of reasonable doubt and the name dropping that's going on, and that's really the effect that's happening, because the name dropping is actually very influential in shaping our opinions. It has actually increased the the public popularity of this uh, of this theory because of that and and that's that's become the the dominant approach to uh, the discussion of Shakespeare's authorship as opposed to the actual uh, uh, possible uh, posited uh, merit or lack thereof of, of Shakespeare's capability and who might have written the plays and why they would want to to uh, to use an, a pen name or an alternative name, or or an alternative uh, playwright and substitution, all that's been lost in the discussion because we simply want to know that uh, Mark Twain thought it was real. So maybe uh, maybe it is. Now before wrapping this up, let's put this through the endurance test. How long has this even been around? Well, as we talked about, about 170 years, and it'll probably continue as time continues to further separate the modern audience with the historical Shakespeare himself. Now, has it had a large influence in popular culture and media? I don't think so. I mean, the romantic notions inspired by the literary impact of Shakespeare's works far overshadow the question of authorship to many. Is it still relevant today? Yes, I I think the question becomes more relevant as time goes on because as the historical person of William Shakespeare becomes 
less familiar and relatable to the modern audience. That the persona, an image of the great playwright takes over. You know, it continues to grow as an incongruity between the two identity, identities continues. And finally, will it continue to capture public imagination going forward? Absolutely, I believe so. As we just discussed, the man and the legend continue to span farther apart as time goes on. As life during the Elizabethan era becomes less familiar and more historical to the audience, the urge to doubt the literary capabilities of that era may very well continue. At least that seems to be the case in similar theories. Clearly, it is a testament to the influence and mass appeal of Shakespeare's body of great works that theories such as these even exist. No one 500 years from now is going to be wondering who actually wrote episodes of conspiracy theoryology. Still, as to the theories themselves, I think there are enough holes in each of them to cast serious doubt, and I don't think anyone should be quick to dismiss Shakespeare. As for the approach being taken to further this conspiracy theory, the use of authority as a persuasive argument to gather additional supporters is really a fallacious approach to the discussion. Conspiracy theorists and believers in the paranormal, esoteric, and alternative ideas can be quick to fall prey to the same approach. It's always tempting to name drop when discussing our beliefs, to add a sense of validity and gravitas. Instead, the theories should be weighed on their own merit and the persuasiveness of the arguments themselves, rather than who might already have found the argument convincing. Okay, well that's, that's all for today. Thanks so much for joining me. If you like what you hear, go ahead and hit that follow button so that you don't miss the discussion. Connect with me via email at contact at conspiracytheoryology.com. Like the show at facebook.com slash theoryology podcast you can find me on twitter at theoryology pod or just recommend the show to others all the info can be found at the show website conspiracytheoryology.com music is by adam henry garcia if you'd like to hear more of adam's music visit adamhenrygarcia.bandcamp.com i'll see you again in two weeks when we tackle another theory and make sense of the public popularity until next time remember Beyond the conspiracy and behind the belief lies the theoryology.